I'm Pastor Blaine Workman. It's my privilege to open God's Word with you today. As we continue to prepare our hearts for the celebration of Easter, we'll do so by uh, continuing on in our four-week study called The Road to Resurrection. Now, throughout this series, we'll be walking with Jesus on his journey through different events in the last seven days leading up to that incredible day called Easter. Did you know that the four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, devoted nearly one-third of their combined accounts of Jesus' life and ministry to just those last seven days? Imagine you're writing the account of of a a man who lived for 33 years. And you've literally spent the last three years shadowing him as he traveled throughout ancient Israel. An amazing three years, by the way. And yet when you wrote his story, one-third of it focused on just the last seven days. The gospel writers must have thought these days were pretty important. And so should we. Our study today takes us to the Tuesday of Holy Week, five days before the most important day in all of human history, Jesus' Resurrection Day. That Tuesday is often referred to as the Day of Confrontation, and with good reason. For as he taught in the temple at Jerusalem on that day, Jesus found himself continually locking horns with Israel's religious leaders who feared his influence. Our text today is taken from Matthew's gospel. Let's pick up the story in Matthew 22, starting in verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true, and teach the word of God truthfully. And do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. What's the old expression? The only certainties in life are death and taxes. Or stop on the road to resurrection today finds Jesus' antagonist using a question about one of those certainties, taxes, to, if possible, bring about the other Jesus' death. Make no mistake, that was their plan. But as we'll see, Jesus had a different idea. And his continues to have implications 
for you and for me even today. The title of today's message is The Image. Would you please join your hearts with mine as we look to the Lord in prayer? Well, Heavenly Father, as we reflect upon the week just past, we just can't escape the reality that we live in a fallen and broken world. Lord, the senseless murders in Atlanta break our hearts and cause us to grieve with yet another minority community bearing the weight of that pain. And the humanitarian crisis once again unfolding at our nation's borders leaves us crying, Lord, please be the helper of the helpless and the defender of the defenseless. Lord, the spiteful and divisive language of our leaders has us wondering what the future holds. We live in a fallen and broken world. In these moments, Lord, I pray that you would help us turn our heart's attention away from the world and on to us. For we too are fallen and broken. We need your restoration, the restoration that that only you can bring. And so, Lord, in these moments, we turn our attention to your word and we say, Spirit of the Lord, living God, transform us, restore us, renew in us a right spirit. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. God's people say it. Amen. And as we bow our hearts under the authority of God's word today, may the Lord be with you. Well, it wasn't even lunchtime on the Tuesday before Passover, and Jesus was yet again drawing crowds and causing commotion. Two days earlier, he had ridden into Jerusalem on a donkey to the acclaim of followers. Hosanna, save us, they said. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. On the following day, Monday, he caused a different kind of stir. Filled with righteous anger at the sight of crooked crooked merchants cheating the holiday crowds of temple worshipers, Jesus had literally taken matters into his own hands. My house shall be called a house of prayer, he said, but you make it a den of robbers. And he overturned the tables of the unscrupulous money changers and vendors on that day. And then on this day, Tuesday, Jesus was once again the center of attention as he set up shop in the temple and began to teach the people. Matthew recorded that as Jesus entered the temple, the chief priests and elders challenged him, by what authority do you do these things? And who gave you this authority? In response, Jesus offered a series of parables that the religious leaders rightly understood as challenging their authority. They were like the unrighteous tenants in God's vineyard, Jesus said. They were like the guests invited to the king's banquet who brazenly refused to come. The die was cast. Unconvinced by the words of Jesus and unconvicted by the Spirit of God, the religious authorities sought to rid themselves of of this man they considered to be some backwater hick from Galilee. 
But that was easier said than done because the crowds, they hung on his every word. The religious leaders knew they couldn't just arrest him in full public view. Hmm. What to do, what to do. Which brings us to our text today. The Pharisees had retired to a back room to plot their next move against Jesus. And the plan that emerged was a stroke of political genius. Taxes, or more specifically, the hated Roman head tax, would be the tip of their spear. Now, how many of you like to pay taxes? I don't see many. <clears throat> and it was, it was no different back in ancient Israel. Rome imposed many burdensome taxes on subjugated peoples. But in Israel, no Roman tax was more despised than the head tax. Every adult, male and female, was charged a fixed amount for the privilege of financing their own oppression by their Roman overlords. And the head tax had to be paid with a specific coin, a denarius, worth about a day's wages for the common labor, uh, maybe $100 in our day. Now, in ancient Rome, the coinage was a sign of kingship. Therefore, each new emperor would mint new coins adorned with his own image. And circulation of the coins throughout the empire would help to brand among all the new leaders absolute authority. In Jesus' day, the image of the reigning emperor Tiberius graced the Roman denarius coin, together with this inscription, Tiberius Caesar, August son of the divine Augustus, a reference to his stepfather and predecessor as emperor. The coin itself Portraying the emperor's image and announcing his divinity was offensive to the Jews who saw it as a blasphemous violation of the commandment, you shall not make for yourself a graven image. But in Jesus' day, there had also risen in Israel a popular anti-Roman movement known as the Zealots. They advanced the rebellious idea that God alone was the ruler in Israel and that no taxes indicating otherwise should be paid to Rome. So as you might expect, the head tax paid by every Jewish adult with a blasphemous Roman coin promoting the divinity of the emperor violated every fiber of the conscience for the zealots and their legion of sympathetic followers. So, reasoned the Pharisees, a properly framed question about taxes would make the perfect avenue of attack on Jesus. If Jesus agreed with paying the head tax, his popular support among the people would collapse. Better yet, they hoped, he would object to paying the tax and they could have the Roman governor arrest him as an insurrectionist. Either way, they, the Pharisees, would win. 
But, of course, the Pharisees were themselves known to Jesus, and their pretentious clothing and, and mannerisms were a dead giveaway. They couldn't pull this off themselves. So they engaged some of their disciples, spies, Luke called them in his gospel, and together with these spies, they conspired to send others from among the party of the Herodians, we're told. Now, what an interesting little detail that is. The Pharisees hated the Roman occupation, while the Herodians supported Rome's puppet king, Herod, in Galilee. But despite the Pharisees' disdain for Herod and his minions, having the Roman sympathizer Herodians along had its purpose. You see, they would lend credibility to any charges this group might be able to bring, especially if Jesus rejected paying the tax. And so they sent the disciples of the Pharisees and the Herodians together to challenge Jesus. Now, those are some strange bedfellows. It was like Antifa and the Proud Boys marching together arm in arm for the sole purpose of entrapping Jesus with his own words. And brothers and sisters, as we walk on the road to resurrection, this strange partnership serves to remind us that anyone who insists on his or her own way, no matter what way that is, will hate Jesus. Recently, a middle-aged couple in our church announced they are responding to God's call, a call that's been examined and affirmed by our parent denomination, the Christian and Missionary Alliance, to serve as international workers for Jesus in one of the darkest places spiritually on earth. Many of us are challenged and inspired by their story, their willing obedience to leave behind every comfort and to set aside everything they know and value here for the privilege of carrying the gospel halfway around the world to people who have never had the chance to hear it. But not everyone's going to feel that way. Many will be confused, others disbelieving. Some have even expressed anger with this couple because they've decided to follow Jesus on a road less traveled. Brothers and sisters, know that on the road to resurrection, days of confrontation will come because those who insist on their own way will resent your allegiance to the one that you are following on the road. But let's return to our text as these strange bedfellows, the undercover disciples of the Pharisees and, and the Herodians approach Jesus, starting in verse 16. Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the word of God truthfully. You don't care about anyone's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Wow, it was game on, wasn't it? You know, on one level, you have to give it to this group. 
You have to give them some props, right? They were good at this. They had thought, thought about this. Jesus, you're always truth, truthful. You're not swayed by what others think. Tell us then, yes or no? Should we pay the hated head, head tax to Caesar or not? The trap had been baited and set, and I suspect the spies were feeling pretty good about their chances right about then. But they had failed to account for one important thing. They weren't just trying to outwit some hick from Galilee or even some other shrewd man of the world, as I'm sure they saw themselves. You see, unlike the emperor Tiberius, who proclaimed himself son of the divine, they were dealing with the real thing. You hypocrites, Jesus replied. Why do you put me to the test? For all their outward appearances of respect and sincerity, Jesus saw right through their baloney. And he sees right through yours and mine as well. For the Lord sees not as a man sees. God had reminded the prophet Samuel. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. 1 Samuel 16, 7. Church, Jesus knows our real story, not just the story we want others to know. He isn't fooled by our self-serving spin. He doesn't buy our clever rationalizations. He even knows the lies we tell ourselves. Brothers and sisters, can I encourage you today to just be unconditionally honest with God? He knows the truth anyhow, but so often he's just waiting for you and, and me to admit it. If you're running from him today, can I encourage you to just stop and tell him why? God, I'm angry with you today. God, I feel like you let me down. Whatever it is, just be real. And tell him. And then after you've said your piece, I encourage you just to sit back and listen. He loves you. He sent his son to die for you, that you would be a part of his forever family. He wants you to know that, and he's not afraid of what's going on in your heart. He already knows it. Years ago, when I left my career in business to take a position as a youth pastor, I think in the, somewhere in the, in the back of my thoughts, I had this wrong-headed idea that, that I was doing something noble for God. My first big youth pastor gig was an excursion with teenagers to do a vacation Bible school on the beach at Myrtle Beach. Now I know it sounds like a tough job, but somebody has to do it, right? <clears throat> well, can I tell you, on the very first day, it was like everything that could go wrong did. It was a total disaster. And after everyone was in bed, I snuck out and went down to the beach, and finding a lonely spot there, I poured my heart out to God. God, what have I done? 
Why did you bring me here? I can't do this. After some time laying on the beach face down with the sand soaking up my tears, I sense God's presence with me speaking to my heart. Son, it's not about you. It's about me. And you're right. You can't do this. I have to do it through you. That was a formational moment in my life and ministry. But it began with me just getting honest with God, the God who already knew that. But back to our story. For the seemingly unanswerable question is still on the table. Jesus, pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, let's not overlook some serious swag here on the part of Jesus. 2,000 years before there was ever a movie about a fictional sports agent named Jerry Maguire, Jesus was already writing one of the movie's best lines. Show me the money! Actually, it was, show me the coin! that's used for the tax. And when they produced the silver denarius coin, Jesus said, whose likeness and inscription is this? The Greek word for likeness is the word icon, which also means image. Whose image is this? Caesar's, they responded. Then render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. No, 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 no. It can't be that easy, his accusers must have been thinking. But to Jesus, it was. You see, the image on the coin was Caesar's. And to Jesus, the image spoke of kingship and ownership. So it's all good. Give back to Caesar what already belongs to Caesar. Pay your tax with Caesar's coin. It belongs to him anyway. Case closed. Problem solved. Some have concluded that Jesus' brilliant response to the sticky tax question was indeed the main point of the story. Yes, he said, believers should pay their taxes. The Apostle Paul would later affirm that very principle in his letter to the Romans. Christians, he said, should be subject to the governing authorities and pay taxes to whomever taxes are owed. Romans chapter 13. Well, since April 15th or May 17th or whatever the tax filing date is this year will soon be upon us, that's a good reminder for us today. But Jesus didn't stop there. And render or give back to God the things that are God's. Well, what things are God's? It's a fair question. Maybe Jesus was referring not to physical things like the coin. That belonged to Caesar. It had Caesar's image on it. But to spiritual things that should be given to God. After all, believers live simultaneously in two worlds, the physical world and the the spiritual world. There can be tension between the two. There often is. But we need to live successfully both as citizens of heaven and citizens on earth, right? Right? 
I couldn't, agree com- I couldn't agree more completely. As Christians, we do need to navigate the challenges of our dual citizenship, both in heaven and on earth. But I think Jesus was saying much more than that. But if we're to see it today, we have to return to that word icon, image. <clears throat> Whose image is this, Jesus had asked. You see, the idea of the image had deep roots in Jewish thought and understanding. As I noted earlier, God's people were forbidden from making a graven image for fear it would turn their hearts toward idolatry. But there was a place where God's image could be seen. In the book of Genesis, in describing the final act of creation, Moses had written this, So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Genesis 1.27. One of the great foundational truths and mysteries of Scripture is wrapped up in this idea, brothers and sisters. Every person, every man, woman, and child... Black, white, yellow, brown. Every person bears the mark of the divine image. It's what sets us apart from the world of animals. It's what leaves our hearts restless until they find their rest in God, the great theologian Augustine would say. Whose image and inscription is this? Jesus had asked of the Roman coin. Then give back to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. But it's as if he didn't even need to ask the follow-up question. It was obvious to his listeners who were well-schooled in the Old Testament, whose image is on you? Then give back to God what belongs to God. See, the image speaks of ownership. Brothers and sisters, instead of holding up a coin, it was like... Jesus was holding up a mirror to those around him. You see, the coin bore the image of Caesar. You bear the image of God. Give back what belongs to give give back to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Give back to God what belongs to God. God's image is on you, and He's the owner of the image. Now, in our own world, it's often said that. Image is everything. Look, feel, style, brand, all trying to create a a well-crafted perception of reality about someone or something. In God's kingdom, the image is all that really matters. The divine image in you and in me, tarnished by sin, restored by grace, to one day be perfected in glory, the divine image is all that matters. Give back to God what belongs to God, said Jesus. You belong to him. How do we know? It's the image. You see that? Now, imagine if all of us in this place and all all of us watching online would today embrace the implications of bearing the divine image and belonging not in part, Not what I want to give up, but belonging in whole, all of me, 
to the owner of the image. So many people today are searching for their true identity, their gender identity, their sexual identity, wanting deeply to answer this question, who am I? Well, God told Moses at the burning bush he would be known by the name I am. And if I bear his image and all of me belongs to him, then my search for my true identity has to begin with God. I am who I am because the I am tells me who I am. Let me say that again. I am who I am because the I am tells me who I am. We'll only know our true identity when we find it in Him because I bear the image. I I bear the image of God. I bear His image. I belong to Him. The image speaks of ownership. What about all the gifts we've been given, our time, talents, and treasure? Who owns all of that? Jesus said, give back to God what belongs to God. Can we talk? Let me share something that's been on my heart for a couple of weeks now. A couple of weeks ago, Pastor Ross and I had a phone conversation with pastors from other Alliance churches, larger Alliance churches from all over the country. We were talking about the process of regathering our congregations for worship and ministry as, as together we, we begin to step out from under the ever-present shadow of this pandemic. In this conversation, every one of these pastors shared the exact same concern for their church families as they were coming back together. Do you know what that was? Servants, volunteers, God's people returning to do the work of the ministry, teaching children, leading small groups, doing all the work of the church that becomes possible unless God's people rise up to serve. Every one of these pastors expressed concern that God's people may have been become complacent over this last year, that that we've grown comfortable watching worship from our couch, dressed in PJs and drinking coffee. Will God's people once again step up to serve? That was their question. And then I started to hear some of the same concerns being expressed by some of our staff members here at ACAC. And I thought, God forbid. God forbid. We're a church that's always run to serve. After a year of missed opportunities, we should be, we should be raring for the chance to, to, to watch babies in the nursery and, and to hang with teenagers in student ministry to, to help seniors find a, a parking spot that's convenient or, or to swing a hammer or work a paintbrush in one of the renovation projects. Now, church, I know that there are still safety concerns that limit the activities of many, but as those begin to recede, 
I trust the story of this church will be God's people couldn't wait to serve. To serve here, to serve our larger community. So just let me ask this question, be honest. How many of you, before the pandemic hit a year ago, had some place of service within our church family, within our, our, our community of faith here? How many of you, just raise your hands. Thank you. Could I encourage you? God's image is on you. Would you continue to serve as soon as you are able for safety reasons? And for all those of you who didn't raise your hands, can I just say that this would be a wonderful time to find a place where God's life and light can shine through you as you serve. Our hospitality people have created a card of serving app opportunities that can help you do that. Or you, or you could go to the website to find a place for that. Here's the point. Now would be a perfect time to consider how it is that I'm, how am I going to serve the Lord and serve God's people? I need to give back my time back to God. It belongs to Him. Well, I could go on and on, but my time has passed. <clears throat> but I do trust that all of you will reflect further on the implications of the divine image and the owner of the image later this week in your growth group discussions. Let me just finish with this. I mentioned earlier that sin has marred and obscured the image of God in all of us. That's why Jesus' journey on the road to resurrection took him through the executioner's cross at Calvary. He died there not to pay the penalty for his own sin. He did it to pay the penalty for your sin and for mine. If you're here today or you're watching me online and you want to get right with God, you can do that in this moment. You just need to believe that Jesus walked that road to the cross to restore the divine image in you. Would you all bow your heads with me in prayer? <clears throat> Father, I do pray in these moments for any who are here, any who are watching online, that as they've been part of this service, your spirit's been calling to them and they want to be right with you. God, I pray that you would give them the words of faith spoken from their own heart to simply say, Jesus, I'm a sinner. I need your help and forgiveness. I have marred that divine image. I need it to be restored. Only you can do that. Would you forgive me and give me the new life that you promised? And Lord, for all the rest of us here, today, would you show us the implications of that image in us and the implications of the owner of the image? Show us what parts we've been keeping from you that we need to say, I'm going to render to God. I'm going to give back to God what belongs to God. Show us those areas that, that you want us to give up 
and give to you. I pray that you do that for each one as they come before you in prayer. I pray it in Jesus' name and for his glory, that his image might be seen in each one of us. Amen. Amen.